This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and mercy that you've bestowed upon us. We are not worthy to uh, be your agents, to be your, your ministers of the gospel to our children. But Lord, we know that where, uh, where we are weak, your strength is made perfect. And so we just ask for your strength to help us to raise the remnant, to raise these, these, these healthy, spiritually strong, thinking, obedient, confident, unspoiled children that you want to present to the world is the greatest argument in favor of Christianity that we can present. Please give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We were going through how these parents are balanced. A fourth way the parents that had success in the research, the parents who raised spiritually strong young adults, the fourth way that they were very balanced in their parenting was that they did not dictate ideas to their children and create their children to be unthinking people. They very much valued the idea of their children becoming independent, thinking, critically thinking people, basing their choices on biblical principles so that they would not be cast this way and that by the winds of doctrine. And this is exactly what we are called to do. There are many who believe without a reason on which to base their faith, without sufficient evidence as to the truth of the matter. Well, if an idea is presented that harmonizes with their own preconceived opinions, they are all ready to accept it. They do not reason from cause to effect. Their faith has no genuine foundation. And in the time of trial, they will find that they have built upon the sand. Let us not be that way with our children, brethren. We must be giving them the firm foundation for the reasons for our faith, for a thinking generation, as my friend Joshua White calls his ministry. Let them learn to draw lessons and discern truth for themselves. So a fifth way these parents are balanced is not just helping the children to discern truth for themselves, but they advance their children at a pace that is natural to them. So the parents, the teachers, the in-laws, the whoever might be looking at that, be like, what? They're that old and they're not potty trained? Now, come on, this is what the official schedule says. Why are they six and they're not reading yet or whatever? No, no, no. These parents let their children enjoy the delights of childhood rather than rushing them. And this doesn't mean they're lax and they're uninterested in their children's development, but they're sensitive to the particular unique dispositions of each child and they advance them at a pace that is natural to them as individuals or if we look to spirit of prophecy, that is natural to the childhood development because this is really, really interesting. This is the part that was the most eye-opening to me of all as I was studying our parents in councils. The little ones should be educated in childlike simplicity. They should be trained to be content with the small helpful duties and the pleasures and experiences natural to their years. True education is not the forcing of instruction on an unready and unreceptive mind. The mental powers must be awakened the interest aroused. So are you hearing what I'm hearing here? There is a time where children's minds are unready for certain types of learning. And there is a time, there is a natural development, natural to their years, for, for children. So let's talk a little bit more about childhood development. We read in child guidance also that mothers let the little ones play in the open air. Let them listen to the songs of the birds and learn the love of God as expressed in his beautiful works. Teach them simple lessons from the book of nature and the things about them. And as their minds Minds expand. Lessons from books may be added and firmly fixed in the memory. So did you notice books are brought in, you might say more academic learning is brought in once their minds have expanded because as we just saw there are certain experiences natural to their years and there is such thing as an unready mind. Readiness is something that's talked about in educational circles, not emphasized nearly as much as, it, as we ought to. Let's ask a question. When does the mind expand? When is a child ready for academics? And when is the natural period for books and academic learning? Well, in 1998, did you know that only 29% of kindergarten teachers, just a few years ago, only 29% believed in teaching reading to their children? By 2010, 78% of kindergarten teachers now were saying this is the time for children to learn reading at age five in kindergarten. But in 1998, 53% only of children were in full-day kindergartens. By 2010, 12 years later, 81% of children were in full-day kindergarten. So we're moving academics 
earlier and earlier and having more and more of it at an earlier age. Well, is this good or not? Let's look at Desire of Ages 68 says that the powers of Jesus' mind developed gradually in keeping with the, what does it say? The laws of childhood. So there are certain laws of childhood development, kind of like the law of gravity or the physical laws of health. These are the laws of childhood brain development. And Jesus' mind developed just like all of ours do. So at certain ages, the mind is ready for certain activities. And namely, we're talking about academics this morning. Now this, by the way, is a, just a little graphic here, illustration of a developed neuron. When a neuron becomes developed, it becomes coated with this myelin sheath. So the, the circuit in the brain, the circuitry of a region of the brain, becomes ready to be used at that point. Once it's myelinated and it's coated with this sheathing, it speeds up the neuron like a hundredfold. And it makes that, that area of the brain, the circuitry of that area of the brain, is organized, myelinated, and primed for, for use. If you try to do things with unmyelinated neurons, it's so inefficient at best, and at worst, even, even, even just useless and harmful. So let's talk about this, the issue of laws of development as it relates to kittens. This is absolutely fascinating. And by the way, a lot of this right now, what I'm, what I'm taking from on, on the, uh, the later development of academic things, the classroom of the remnant is my friend Joshua White is the, the lecturer on this. Powerful, powerful seminar material. I, I enjoy traveling around, sharing truths, doing the Media on the Brain seminar. Pretty much every weekend I'm at a different church, and I, I still enjoy doing that. So, I, I, you know, feel free to, to contact us and say, hey, we want to get you to our church. We're doing something else called a virtual seminar, too, which is, I, I'll talk about that later. Just come to the booth. I can talk, you, talk to you about that. But my friend Joshua White also is doing seminars as well on this important topic of child development. So I just wanted to put a little plug in for his ministry because it's powerfully important information. And he's on the DVDs there that Belt of Truth Ministries put out. These kittens right here. They did a study, and they found a certain area of the, the kitten's brain called a vertical feature detector. So this is part of the visual cortex. It enables the kittens to see vertical lines. Well, what they found was that at about eight to nine weeks old, these neurons that are vertical feature detectors organize and myelinate. So they become ready for use. Before that time, kittens' visions is a little off. They can't really see vertical lines. But once they myelinate, then they can see them. You know what they did? is they, they, uh, they blindfolded these poor kittens. If you're a cat fan, lover, uh, this is kind of sad and, and, and very, very tragic, but they blindfolded the poor kittens during the eight to nine week period of time. This is the critical window of development. When the, the, those neurons are, are getting primed for use, they weren't using them. And you know what happened? They unblindfolded them after this period of time, and they couldn't for the rest of their lives see vertical lines. It's called a critical window of development, kind of like language development. If you don't learn language, if you grow up, you know, in, a, in an orphanage where nobody's talking to you or you grow up in the wild, you know, with, with the monkeys or whatever, and you don't learn human language, it becomes almost impossible to learn later because there's a critical window of development early on. Same thing with these kittens. Now, let's talk about the human brain development, critical windows. Here you have the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere of the brain is important for, among other things, creativity, or what we called earlier divergent thinking, uh, faith and belief, and spirituality. This is the most important theme right here. The spiritual hardwiring of the brain is taking place during this period, from the earliest ages of toddlerhood up until age seven and eight in girls, or a couple years later in boys. Does this sound familiar to anybody who's studied Spirit of Prophecy? I'm hearing like eight, seven and eight to ten here. We're going to come back to that. The left hemisphere and the frontal lobe develop and myelinate in all of these ways, logical, mathematical, reading, academic things. They develop between after the organizational and myelination of the right hemisphere. So after the right hemisphere is done myelinating, like seven to eight in girls, a couple years later in boys. After that, that's when the left hemisphere and frontal lobe are organizing, myelinating, getting primed for use. Now, what do we do? Well, we read from Spirit of Prophecy, little children whose brains are undeveloped have been kept confined indoors to their injury, talking about too early a schooling. Their minds are undeveloped yet. How did she know? During the first six or seven years of a child's life, special attention should be given to its physical training rather than the intellect. Isn't that something? Too much importance cannot be placed on the early training of children. The lesson that the child learns during the first seven years of life have more to do with forming his character. Do you hear the spirituality coming in during these first seven years than all he learns in future years? Parents should be the only teachers of their children until they have reached eight or ten years of age. 
Amazing how the year the years line up with the research, isn't it? Parents should be the only teachers of their children until they have reached eight or ten years of age. Isn't that something? The only schoolroom for children until eight or ten years of age should be in the open air, amid the opening flowers and nature's beautiful scenery. The only schoolroom. By the way, you might, you might also look to the, the experience of Israel. In the, in the school and the home, much of the teaching was oral, but the youth also learned to read the Hebrew writings and the parchment rolls of the Old Testament scriptures were open to their study. And, and of course, among the Jews, the 12th year was the dividing hood between child and youth. So the 12-year-olds were reading. It's an older kid thing here in the experience of Israel as well. Many children have been ruined for life by urging the intellectual and neglecting the strength to strengthen the physical powers. Now, you might say, well, why, why do Adventist schools allow kids to enroll, you know, under, under age 10, under age 8 then? Well, this was, there was actually a controversy over this in Ellen White's day because they were following this council. They were like, no kids allowed in the school until, until 10. And th- this was actually causing some problems because there were kids just being left out in the streets and their parents were not properly educating them in the home until 8 or 10. And so, then, so she said the mother should be instructed how to teach them, first of all. But in, in, in that case, in St. Helena, California, she counseled, let's, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to open up the school here to kids as young as 7, 8, and 9 and let them do sort of a pre, what I call a pre-academic curriculum. She referred to it as the doing what they did at the Haskell home, the orphanage in, in Battle Creek. We're going to have the kids playing with sand, doing Noah's Ark, learning how to work together, these kinds of things, in a separate department, or she even said a separate building. So it's not early schooling, but it's allowing the kids to have a place where they can learn discipline that they're not learning at home. So when parents are unwilling or unable for whatever reason to have their children at home during those years, then we provide something. So this is teaching you about this brain development thing is not meant to be a criticism of a school that's allowing and taking care of children whose parents are unable or unwilling because we have it from spirit of prophecy that we ought to be providing them a place where they can learn discipline. But nonetheless, the academic push going earlier and earlier is a worldly tendency that runs contrary to what we do, what we have in in spirit of prophecy. Um, I'm going to skip that and skip that for the sake of time. Now, Everybody who's a data nerd like me wants to know what that chart was. You can come to me afterwards and I'll show you what that chart was. A sixth way that these parents are extraordinarily balanced in their parenting is they're sensitive to their child's stress level or burnout factor. They would give them, you know, just a few activities but not overwhelm them with so much, so much stimulation. The more quiet and simple the life of the child, the more free from artificial excitement and the more in harmony with nature, the more favorable it is to spiritual and physical development and mental vigor and spiritual strength. They did a study with rats once where they put them in this enriched environment and gave the rats all sorts of you know, bright, colorful toys and little noise-making things. And these rats developed bigger brains compared to the rats in the sterile environment of just a cage. And so the, this gave birth to a whole industry of all sorts of you know, like high-tech, super-intense, high-stimulating learning tools for children. Your baby Einstein, your leapfrog, and all of this bright, flashing stuff. And what they didn't tell you the rest of the study was that they put, also put rats in in a natural environment, sticks, pine cones, dirt, etc., these rats developed even bigger brains than the stimulated rats. Isn't that something? So the more free from artificial excitement, the more in favor, in harmony with natural development, is the, the better it is. Some parents give much time and attention to amusing their children, you know, with all the, all the exciting toys. Children should be trained to amuse themselves to a certain degree too, right? To exercise their own ingenuity and skill, thus they will learn to be content with very simple pleasures. Simple pleasures. Very good. An active out-of-door life would develop health of both mind and body. They should have a garden to cultivate where they might find both amusement and useful employment. Let the mother find time to cultivate in herself and her children a love for the beautiful things of nature. This is going to require some changing. If we don't like being outside, you know, our kids aren't going to catch that from us much either. But next to the Bible, nature is our great lesson book. To the little child, not yet capable of learning from the printed page, nature presents an unfailing source of instruction and delight. So there you have it. These parents are balanced. They really fit, they, they, they fulfill their children's emotional and physical needs. They don't push them too early on, on too many things. And they, they, uh, they, they provide an environment where you don't need to do as much of what we're about to talk about. And we finally are going to. I've been referring to it again and again because I know that many parents are struggling and you want to learn how to, you know, how do I get my kids to, to behave These parents who had success in the research did establish rules in the home. 
It wasn't just a sort of you know, hippie environment of lots of you know, just love and you know, you know, freewheeling whatever. They also had order, structure, discipline, rules. These are hugely important for the development of children. We need to be absolutely abundant with our, with our love and affection and with our time. And at the same time, as a form of that love, make sure that there's order in the home. So these, these parents established rules in the home. Every Christian home should have rules. Adventist Home 305. Parents should not leave the children to guess at what is right, but should point out the way in unmistakable terms and teach them to walk therein. Rules should be few and well considered, and once made, they should be enforced. So let's be specific about this. These rules are put in place with much communication. You have to explain to children, really, what the rules are. Don't make them guess, we just read. Tell your children exactly what you require of them. And then practice the desired behaviors. That's hugely important. Lessons on obedience need to be often repeated. So you go through rituals of practicing. This is what we expect of you, especially with small children. They just need the practice and the, the habituation of it. If, they, if, if, they do, if you do it right, they will be the enforcers. We established some table manners at my house. No elbows on the table. My wife is from Canada. And in Canada, they have this constant fear that the queen is going to show up at their house. Have you ever hung out with Canadians? And like, what, would, what if the queen was here? What would she think of how you slurped your soup? And I'm like, Where, how's the queen of England going to come to our house? But anyway, all jokes aside, my, my wife and I go back and forth on the Canadian-American stuff. But she's, she takes table manners seriously, and I ought to take them more seriously. So she says, no elbows at the table and now who's the person that notices first in my family when there are elbows on the table my son Levi at age three and a half dad your elbows are on the table so you know you're doing it right if they're the enforcers or, or mom uh, said to Silas the baby you know you try to teach the baby obedience and she says to him you know no no or whatever and Levi we had told Levi not to say no rudely to his brother because that's scolding and we don't do scolding and he said mom I think that was scolding that you just did to Silas <laughs> oh this is a good one my wife, bless her soul, I love my wife. Um, she likes it when we go to church that the whole family match our clothes together, right? Like, I'm just having a hard enough time getting my own to match myself. And she, so I put my clothes on. I had the blue shirt and the, the blue tie, and it was right around Christmas, and she had dressed the kids in red, and like, you know, she was ready to go with hers, and she goes, my son Levi's watching this all develop, and she looks at me, and she says, it's all on, right? Like, it takes a lot to get the shirt tucked in right, the tie on right, so I'm like, all right, I'm done, now I can get on with things, and she says, honey, would you mind changing into the white shirt and the red tie? And the look on my face, could, my son Levi could see I was struggling with this, and he said, dad, are you still going to do it even though you don't want to? Age three and a half, we had said that to him over and over again. You have to obey even though you don't want to. And so, uh, yeah, I'm going to do it, son. <laughs> so let's give some examples of some household rules. The most important rule in the home is obedience. And that covers so many situations. If children can learn to obey, this covers so much of what are the, the challenges that we might face with our children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for, the, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Obey your parents in all things. Honor thy father and thy mother. By the way, if you are an Eli and you let your children do as they please and you don't command your children after you, as Abraham did, the consequences are eternal. Many souls will be eternally lost because of the neglect of parents to properly discipline their children and to teach them submission to, the authorities, to, the, to authority in their youth. The parents have thought they loved their children but have proved themselves their worst enemies. They have let evil go unrestrained. They have allowed their children to cherish sin which is like cherishing and petting a viper that will not only sting the victim who cherishes it, but all who, with whom it is connected. Wherever we go, we see children indulged, petted, and praised without discretion. Self-will and pride are evils that turned angels into demons and barred the gates of heaven against them. And yet parents, unconsciously, are systematically training their children to be agents of Satan. Strong counsel, huh? Oh, that the Elis of today, who are everywhere to be found, pleading excuses for the waywardness of their children, would promptly assert their own God-given authority to restrain and correct them. If instead of unlimited indulgence, the chastening rod were oftener used, which we'll talk about in a moment, not in passion, but with love and prayer, we would see happier families and a better state of society. Many parents soothe their own consciences by saying, oh, my children are no worse than others. What does the Bible say about that? Those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. It's not a good idea. The, the, the standard is Christ. What kind of love is it that permits your child to develop traits of character that will make him and everyone else miserable? Away with such love. True love will look out for the present and eternal good of the soul. 
And it is a higher branch of education to teach children obedience. Altogether, too little importance is attached to this line of education. Children will be happier, far happier, under proper discipline than if left to do as their untrained impulses suggest. Children who are allowed to have their own way are not happy. In respecting and rendering obedience to their parents, they may learn how to respect and obey their heavenly Father. Trust and obey. This is the Christian life in a nutshell, right? Salvation by faith, trusting in Christ, which produces obedience. The children will learn this as they relate to their parents in the same way that we're training them to relate with God. And this is where we look at Abraham, even taking Isaac up on the mountain. How much trust and obedience did this boy have? He was, he was vigorous and, and strong enough and fast enough to escape his father's clutches if he were to be forced down on that altar. He was submitting to his own father's request even though he didn't understand it. Just like Job who said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the kind of trust we need to have in God. Do our children trust us and obey us implicitly? Begin in baby life to teach obedience. Frequently mere babes show a most determined will. When your, ba- when your children are babes in your arms, teach them to we- yield their will to yours. With mildness and fir- yet firmness, bend the will of your child until it shall expect nothing else, nothing else but to yield to your witches, uh, wishes. My wife does this uh, with the baby. Have you ever seen babies? They all do this at a certain number of months of age. If they're upset about something, they pull one of these. Ah, like that, right? Head back, arched back. And my wife's like, no, 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 no. This is not going to happen. Uh, we didn't know all these principles at the very beginning of our, of our parenting. She's applying a lot of them to our second baby that we would, wish we would have known and, and, and had studied through the first time around. But we were new in the church at that point. But nonetheless, with the, the, the baby right now, Silas, don't arch your back. She just pulls his head back up. Don't arch your back. Don't arch your back. Just do it three or four times and then he stops. And it's, a, it's quite an interesting thing to watch. Or sit on your bottom. During worship, the baby, you know, wants to be this way and that. Sit on your bottom. Sit on your bottom. Sit on your bottom. Uh, don't touch the treadmill. This is a big one. My treadmill is my office. I work from home now. I've been a teacher for 11 years, but now I'm doing this ministry full time. And I, I work on the treadmill on my computer, on my laptop. So I'm typing away at this, doing emails, setting up speaking events, working on the seminar, whatever. And the kids are, oh, this, this is interesting, the treadmill. So we've had to train them. That's not safe for kids. Don't touch the treadmill. And so what she'll do is he'll be crawling towards the treadmill and she'll say it. Don't touch the treadmill. And he reaches out to touch his hand on there. And she, she takes him back and, and lets him do it again. She doesn't bring him into the other room this is a training moment of don't touch the treadmill try it a few times and then he learns and he actually obeys it's amazing I never thought a baby that age could obey my wife says sometimes you, you want to ambush them like you watch them they're about to go do it and then and, and you let them make that choice and then have the immediacy of the consequence of is this it yes this is the consequence if your child reaches out to take something forbidden thing some forbidden thing say kindly but firmly no do not touch it and you will find after telling him him this two or three times that he will learn to obey Touch the, little hand a little, touch the hand a little severely if necessary. When he reaches after the forbidden object, again say, no, 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 mustn't touch, mustn't touch. If thus trained in their babyhood and early childhood, they will learn to obey while very young. What a great blessing in their lives if they can learn that at an early age. Mothers, be sure that you properly discipline your children during the first three years of their lives. Do not allow them to form their wishes and desires. The mother must be mined for her child. This is not older children. We don't treat our children like brute animals when they're 13. We want them to become thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. But with little children, the mother must be mined for their child. As soon as he is capable of understanding, his reason should be enlisted on the side of obedience. You don't want to crush the will. You want to enlist the will, train the will to obey the dictates of reason and conscience. And we already talked about that. So how about this one? If you have waited until your children were three years old to begin to teach them self-control and obedience, seek to do it now, even though it will be much harder. Those who realize their deficiency in this respect should make the study of family government their most diligent study. So this is what true obedience looks like, okay? The word of the parents should be law precluding arguments or evasions. If you say something and there's a talking back, a whining about it, an argumentation about it, you know you don't have obedience in place at that point. The word of the parents is law precluding arguments and evasions. A child should be so trained that a refusal by mom or dad would be received at the right spirit and accepted as final. She calls it prompt and perfect obedience. I I refer to it as quick and complete with, with Levi. If it's not quick, then it wasn't obedience. You know, he obeyed... You know, after a few seconds of thinking about it and stalling and stonewalling, that wasn't obedient. Prompt and perfect. So when we say obedience, we're, we're, we're raising the bar on this thing. Not creative obedience. This has been big with our, our, our strong-willed firstborn. Uh, you know, we said the other day, can you please set this on the counter? And he goes, I'm going to set it on the island. 
in the kitchen. Ah, okay, you know, he's, he's obeying, but it's, it's creative disobedience is really what it is. I'm going to do it my way. No, no, no. We, we, we've noticed certain phrases. I'm just, honey, son, can you do this? Uh, I'm just, or actually, or but, these words are red flags for us to know we don't have <laughs> obedience. And it, this includes, obedience includes what, what my hands are requiring you to do also. You know, if I reach out the black elderberry syrup, you know, we're working on the immune system here during cold season, flu season, and, and the head turns away like that, you know, obey my hands. Or, you know, I, I hand you your water. Don't just sit there with your arms like this. So, you know, we want, we want quick and complete obedience in all ways. Um, and this is all within the context of infinite grace and love and, and, and kindness and that we've talked about all morning. So I don't need to repeat all that. But we want heart obedience, willing obedience from the heart, not just outward compliance too. And you might say, oh, this sounds too strict. Come on. It was just a minor disobedience. Let it slide. They're just kids. If you think about it, it is not the greatness of the disobedience but the disobedience itself that is the crime. The mother should not allow her child to gain an advantage over her in a single instance. And in order to maintain this authority, it is not necessary to resort to harsh measures. Satan will devise every possible means to break down this high standard of piety as one altogether too strict. If you think about Adam and Eve, it was just a piece of fruit, right? It's not that big a deal, is it? It's a good thing God gave us that example of the first sin, because if it would have been some great thing, then we might have excused the small things. But this was just some small, it was just a piece of fruit. It was disobeying God. And that's why it wasn't small. It was a big thing. So rule number one is obey mom and dad. And by the way, here's an important point. You don't need to be a drill sergeant and find opportunities to require obedience. You don't need to go out of your way to find times to require your children to obey. Those kind of things happen naturally all the time in life. Make obedience to your requirements as easy as possible. It is better to request than to command. The one thus addressed has opportunity to prove himself loyal to right principles if it's been requested of him and not commanded. Some commanding may be necessary. Notice it's some. Some commanding may be necessary in the place of consulting the inclination and pleasure of the children. Instead of kindly asking the children to do this or that, some people order them in a scolding tone. Just order them around in a scolding tone. They do your bidding not from love, but because they dare not do otherwise. Their heart is not in the matter. It is drudgery instead of a pleasure. And this often leads them to forget to follow out all your instructions, which increases your irritation and makes it still worse for the children. Does this sound familiar in any of our homes? The fault finding is repeated, their bad conduct arrayed before them in glowing colors until discouragement comes over them. And they are not particular whether they please or not. A spirit of I don't care seizes them. And they seek that pleasure and enjoyment away from home, away from their parents, which they do not find at home. That's going to be the end result of this. We lose our children. Twelve ways to make your instructions easy to follow, okay? It says make obedience as easy as possible. First thing, give few commands, but see that these are obeyed. If it's just constant commands coming at them constantly in the middle of all of this activity, then it's just hard to keep track of that all, and it's hard to obey that way. Make it easier for them by giving few. Before requiring something of them, have their attention first. Get some eye contact because then it'll be more clear that it has come across and been communicated effectively. Don't surprise them. Give them some advance warning. You know, sometimes, well, let me read this. Often we do more to provoke than to win. I have seen a mother snatch from the hand of her child something that was giving it special pleasure. The child did not know the reason for this and naturally felt abused. Then followed a quarrel. And so we want to warn the show. You know, in, in five minutes, we're going to be cleaning up and getting ready for the bath time, right? Instead of just like, all right, we're done playing snatch, you know. Oh, wait, wait, what just happened, right? That's not right. You wouldn't want to be treated that way, right? These are brothers and sisters in Christ. Also, use few words, not lengthy explanations of why they must obey, especially with small children. Few words, very few words. Be extremely clear about exactly what you want them to do. If you give vague instructions, you're going to get vague responses. We want clear, explicit, distinct, tell your children exactly what you require them, then let them understand that your word is law and must be obeyed. Number six here, differentiate between suggestions and commands. Sometimes, you know, you're just playing around and you say, hey, buddy, toss me the ball. Are you requiring obedience at that point? No, no, it's just toss me the ball. You know, if he decides to bounce it instead, it's not like you have not tossed it to me. Kind of, right? um, but sometimes kids have a hard time discerning. Is this something you're like fully requiring of me or is this just something you're kind of saying? So what we do is we, we, we include, okay, Levi, set the mug on the counter, please. Okay? And we say, okay, like that. And he's required to say, okay. Okay. 
So that's a situation where it's clear that it's a requirement. It is a, one of those few commands. And so when he says okay, then he knows we're, we're on the same page. Passion, though, is not necessary to secure prompt obedience. Be sure that your tone of your voice betrays no irritation. The way I hear parents in, just in the broader culture, it's just we're, we have this, this tone of voice. It's just toxic for our kids. We're just like commanding and scolding them around. And you don't need to use passion when you're asking them to do something. Don't ask questions. Make statements. If, you, if you're getting ready to go outside and you say, shall we go outside to a two-year-old, what are they going to say? No, they say no to everything you give them an option for, right? So you say, we're going outside while you're putting an arm in the sleeve, right? And, and you know, don't, make, don't ask questions, make statements. Phrase it in the positive rather than only saying the word don't because it's clearer. It gives them exact instructions of what to do. So rather than saying don't, just saying don't touch the computer, sometimes I'm on the laptop, you know, on the, on the couch or whatever, and the baby comes and he's got his hands on it. And instead of don't touch the computer, let's replace that with something to do with their hands. Like, please put your hands on one of those toys, not the computer. You choose one of those toys, okay? So this is a little bit more clear, and they get the vivid picture of I am choosing and I have a toy in my hands instead of just a don't. You know, you've heard the thing about um, don't think about an uh, elephant right now, right? Like everybody in the room just thought about an elephant because I said don't think about an elephant. So if I say don't touch the computer, what words are echoing in their head? Touch the computer. <laughs> you know, the don't word is there, but they're just thinking about the computer. So give them something different. And in that same vein, seek to correct their faults by encouraging opposite traits. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but have something productive with his hands that he may give to others. Number 11, uh, ask the child, have you ever heard this phrase before? I think, I think my wife got this from Kay Kuzma. Ask the child one thing to do, then make sure they follow through. I like that little rhyme because it really helps you to make sure they follow through. Do not release them from that which you have required them to do. Do not let your mind become so absorbed in other things as to cause you to grow careless. It is not enough to say, do this, do that, and then become utterly regardless and forgetful of what you have required, and the children are not careful to do your commands because you don't follow through, right? So this is going to make, easy, make it easy to follow. Requiring obedience will be a nightmare for you if you are inconsistent in enforcing it. Uh, by the way, do the, do the policemen on the road enforce uh, the speed limit to the, to the precise amount? Can you drive, how many of you drive three miles an hour over the speed limit sometimes? Okay, me too. Because it's really not the rule, is it? The rule is the what's enforced. And so we operate that way within the broader society. You know, three miles and over is kind of allowed. You know, whoops, I'm a, I'm a couple miles over. But really, I haven't broken the rule because nobody's ever gotten a ticket for three miles an hour. Has anybody? I don't know anybody's ever. You have gotten a ticket. I take everything I just said back. I apologize. <laughs> Terrible illustration because the brother did get a ticket for three over. I thought nobody ever enforced three over. But anyway, when it is necessary for parents to give a direct command, the penalty of disobedience should be as unvarying as are the laws of nature. The child should know that just, just as you know this DVD case is going to drop to the ground when I release it from my hands, the child should know, just like the laws of nature, that when mom and dad have required something, when mom and dad have said something, it gets followed through like gravity, like that consistently. Then they'll know, okay, then, then I can know what to expect and it'll be easier for them to obey. There are times, though, when the determination of the mother meets the determination of the child. Oh boy, this is a crisis that should seldom be permitted to come. For both mother and child will have a hard struggle. Great care should be shown to avoid such an issue. While they are too young to reason with, divert their minds as best as you can. So sometimes with a baby, we're not, you know, it's not constant obedience training. The baby's having a little bit of a fit about something. You know what I'll do sometimes? Uh, divert their minds. It's a good way to put something on my head. Like, just, put, just be a clown. Just have some fun. And they're like, what just happened? Put something on your head, and the baby's like, he's just done. With, or with, with my firstborn, Levi, I'd bring him to the window, or I'd walk outside with him, and all of a sudden, trees, birds, what else? He totally forgot about what he was upset about, right? So sometimes it's just divert their minds. Another strategy, shock treatment. Some people have told me they've poured a, they put a ice water in the fridge. Have you ever heard this? Dumped. I've never done that, but you need to be cooled down, son. Uh, tantruming there in the kitchen, dump it on them, and shock treatment. I don't know. There are many ways to divert their minds. Uh, some maybe a little bit more uh, inhumane than others. But I have often seen a little one throw itself and scream if its will was crossed in any way. This is the time to rebuke the evil spirit. This is serious. Mothers should not allow them to pound their heads on the floor. Let the mothers educate them in their infancy. Commence with the songs of Bethlehem. These soft tunes will have a quieting influence. 
Mothers see Satan working in the self-willed child of even but a few months of age. It is the greatest cruelty to let Satan have the possession of that tender, helpless child. Satan must be rebuked. His hold on the child must be broken. If correction is needed, be faithful and true. We'll talk more about correction in just a bit. There are times, so you heard this, when the determination of the mother meets the determination of the child. We do our best to avoid situations like that in life in general because we don't want to just be battling all the time. We're not going out of our way to try and find battles to have with our children. But at such times, if this is, issue is entered into, you need great wisdom. You need very great wisdom because the child could be ruined by these situations. The child must be led to yield to the superior wisdom of the parent. The mother is to keep her words under perfect control. There are to be no loud-voiced commands. Nothing is to be done that will develop a defiant spirit in the child. The mother must study how to deal with him in such a way as he will be drawn to Jesus. She must pray in faith that Satan will not be the victor over the child's will. The heavenly angels are watching the scene. So how do we handle that? I'm going to skip through some more of these, some more of these rules real quick just to get to the enforcement of the rules. You may have many different rules, good rules, manners, and all sorts of good things in your home. The one we're talking about right now is the rule of, of disobedience, which is so common. Um, so how do we enforce, sorry, I'm skipping forward just a bit here, for the sake of time. When we enforce obedience, first of all, we do enforce it. We require it. We enforce the rules. The true love is not ex exercised toward children when they are allowed to indulge passion or when disobedience of your laws is permitted to go unpunished. As the twig is bent, the tree is inclined. And we enforce the rules without malice. This is hugely important. Do not, I beg of you, strong words. Do not, I beg of you, correct your children in anger. The parent who, when correcting a child, gives way to anger is more at fault than the child. Ask the gardener by what process he makes every branch and leaf to flourish so beautifully and to develop in symmetry and loveliness. He will tell you that it was by no rude touch, no violent effort, for this would only break the delicate stems. It was by little attentions often repeated. And that's what we need to be doing with our children as well. But you can't be so nice to them. They just disobeyed. They just deliberately broke a rule. They deserve punishment. There is, uh, by the way, Christ was already treated as we deserve, Right? So this concept of deserve punishment in some sort of penal situation, we've completely misunderstood it. The child does not deserve our impatience, anger, or fretful scolding. What they deserve is your patient teaching, disciplining, and training them in righteousness. Fourteen times in child guidance, scolding is prohibited. She says it never helps on page 216. So what does it mean to enforce the rules? What is discipline? Is it scolding and criticizing, punishing and spanking? It, or, I'll tell you what it's not. Discipline is not retribution settling the score, or a penal system of justice. They deserve to be in a certain amount of pain because of what they have done here. What are we teaching them about the gospel? If, they, if your true, a child has come to a point of repentance and they're, they're, they're putting their behavior back in order and you still say we're going to enforce punishment and spankings and rods of correction here, what is that teaching them about the gospel? That Christ's punishment that he received on the cross was not sufficient. We still need more. Now, am I saying we should never punish them? Of course not. Let's proceed. Because the word discipline means to teach. Correct their errors and patiently teach them the right way. The object of discipline is the training of the child for self-government. Not just to get outward compliance, but that they might truly come to a point of repentance themselves. Listen to this. Your children may have done something that demands punishment, but if you deal with them in the spirit of Christ, their arms will be thrown about your neck. They will humble themselves before the Lord and acknowledge their wrong. That is enough. They do not then need punishment. Now, does that mean there are no consequences? No. We'll talk about consequences in a minute, but this is a hugely major theme in Spirit of Prophecy. Do not become impatient with your children when they err. When you correct them, do not speak abruptly and harshly. Be patient with their imperfections as God is patient in your imperfections. Neither infants, children, nor youth should hear an impatient word from any member of the household. Think you that in the day of God's judgment, anyone will regret that he has been patient and kind with his children? To manifest passion toward an erring child is to increase the evil. But sometimes everything seems to go wrong in our homes. There is fretfulness all around and all have a miserable, unhappy time. The parents lay the blame upon the poor children and think them the very disobedient and unruly, the worst children in the world, when the cause of the disturbance is in themselves. They speak irritably and in a manner to excite wrath in their children and are sometimes ex exacting and wrathful. Fathers, provoke not, not your children to wrath is a divine injunction. So administer the rules of the home, not with a rod of iron. Harsh words sour the, temp, temp, the temper, and these wounds are difficult to heal. 
They're to be firm and kind, as we've seen. Never, never are you to show a tyrannical spirit in the home. The man who does this is working in partnership with satanic agencies. A Christian mother will regulate her temper. She has to hold fast the reins of self-control so impatient words don't slip from her tongue. So we are going to enforce these rules and we're going to enforce them consistently without malice. If we don't enforce it consistently, I'm going to skip some quotes here, but you know what we do? We create a gambler. Because the child doesn't know what to expect. Sometimes you enforce, sometimes you don't. And well, I'm going to see if I can get away with it, right? And this is how we have misbehavior problems. So let's go through the discipline teaching learning process. Natural consequences are always best. If they've done something that brings about some unhappy natural consequence in life, that is great discipline because it teaches them natural lessons that they gain in their lives from what they've done. So you were careless and you spilled at the table. Well, the mess is yours to clean up. That's a natural consequence. You pull your sister's hair, she's going to go in the other room and you just lost your playmate, right? Natural consequence. Allow these things to happen. You didn't eat your, your vegetables in a timely manner. Well, then the healthy, tasty dessert is going to be put away by the time you're done. So it's not an externally imposed consequence. It's just a natural consequence. But if there's no natural consequence for a misbehavior or a disobedience that takes place, then impose a logical consequence. Like whining. We were working on this at our household. Got to get whining out of, the, out of the picture so you automatically don't get what you whined for. It's just an automatic thing. Or if you've interrupted, we have a little timer that we use a lot for various things. Put a minute on the timer. Our very talkative child, not allowed to talk for a minute. Pretty serious consequence for him for interrupting and learning that, that important skill of not interrupting. Being loud while the baby is sleeping. Again, now you have to be quiet for a minute. You know, you impose a logical consequence, not with some sort of malice or spitefulness like, now you're going to get it. No, not that kind of thing. It's just, I'm going to help you learn, and this is what we need to do now. Misbehavior involving a toy, the toy gets put away. So what consequences should we use? I'm going to skip that for the sake of time also. Um, this is where I wanted to go because this is important. If you have a situation of defiance and disobedience, you have a, a very serious heart issue that you need to deal with, sin that needs to be confessed in the child, then we want to, to approach this with, with, with care and following what we have from our counsels. First of all, you're going to probably be angry. I don't know, if you're like me, child disobeys, the instant reaction is you're angry. You just saw it modeled so much as a kid, and it's just the way we go. So what do we do? Listen to this. When your child, children do wrong and are filled with rebellion, and you are attempted to speak and act harshly, wait before you correct them. Give them an opportunity to think and you allow your temper to cool. Before correcting them, go by yourself and ask the Lord to soften and subdue the hearts of your children and give you wisdom in dealing with them. You cannot make a child understand spiritual things when the heart is stirred with passion. When a parent becomes impatient and is in danger of speaking unwisely, let him remain silent. There's wonderful power in silence. Discipline them only when you are under the discipline of God. When I have felt roiled and was tempted to speak words that I would be ashamed of, I would keep silent and pass right out of the room and ask God to give me patience to teach these children. Then I would go back and talk with them. And with older children, you might say this, when my spirit was stirred or when I felt anything like being provoked, I would say, children, we shall let this rest now. We shall not say anything more about it now. Before we retire, we shall talk it over. Having all this time to reflect, by evening they had cooled off and I could handle them nicely. With, with younger children, you want immediacy. You don't want to be waiting too long. But same thing here. I'd, I'd leave and they'd come back to me, she says, and they would confess their wrongs. Older children, more so. But for sure, you go pray, and then come and pray together. You see, when your heart is full of pity and sorrow for your erring children, pray with them before correcting them. Pray with them before correcting them. The, that prayer may make such an impression on their minds that they will see that you are not unreasonable. When I prayed with them, they would break all into pieces, and they would throw their arms around my neck and cry. As you bow before God with your child, here's the actual prayer you can pray. Present his words, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. That prayer will bring angels to your side. Your child will not forget these experiences and the blessing of God will rest upon such instruction, leading him to Christ. When children realize that their parents are trying to help them, they will bend their energies in the right direction. And so the, after you pray together, what you're doing is you're, you're looking for the heart. You're looking for a changed heart. Has their heart, we, we, we go on the couch together, he realizes he's in discipline, reason with the child, and, and, and find out, clearly point out the wrongs. I ask them what they did wrong, see if they know, and if they're confessing it, impress them that they've sinned against you and against God. And you don't need to stir up their passions, just talk with them, and then and pray with them, and lead them to Christ. Such disciplining will nearly always break the most stubborn heart. And then, if there's a change of heart, you celebrate. Christ has forgiven you. 
I forgive you. That is enough. They do not then need punishment, right? But this is where some of you were wondering, well, what about the rod of correction that the Bible talks about? Well, if there's no change of heart, you're going through this process, you're, you're seeking for the heart of your child through prayer, through reasonable, kind tones, all of this, and it's just stubborn rebellion against what you're trying to do. The Bible does say the rod of correction will drive foolishness far from the, the heart of the child. And this is not, so let me just, don't take my words on this, let's read. You may have to punish with a rod, but this, this is sometimes essential. But defer any settlement of the difficulty until you have settled the case with yourselves. Ask yourself, have I submitted my way and will to God? Have I placed myself where God can manage me so that I can have wisdom, patience, kindness, and love in dealing with refractory elements in the home? Never raise your hand to give them a blow unless you can, with clear conscience, bow before God and ask his blessing upon the correction you are about to give. Whipping may be necessary when other resorts fail, yet she should not use the rod if it is possible to avoid doing so. But if milder measures prove insufficient, punishment that will bring the child to its senses. Notice it's not penal senses of justice and equalizing, settling the score. It's shock treatment. It's wake-up call moment for the child. Bringing the child to its senses should in love be administered. Frequently, one such correction will be enough for a lifetime to show the child that he does not hold the lines of control. And when this step becomes necessary, the child should be seriously impressed with the thought that this is not done for the gratification of the parent or to indulge arbitrary authority, but for the child's own good. Some children, some, are so vicious in their tempers that infliction of pain is necessary. But very many cases are made much worse by this manner of discipline. Never give your child a passionate blow unless you want him to learn to fight and quarrel. If you wish to ruin your family, continue to govern by brute force and you will surely succeed. I have said that to shake a child would shake two evil spirits in when it would shake one out. Be so calm, so free from anger, that they will be convinced that you love them even though you punish them. The true object of reproof is gained only when the wrongdoer himself is led to see his fault and his will is enlisted for its correction. When this is accomplished, point him to the source of pardon and power. And this is why you're back at this step. There's a change of heart. You've maybe needed to take that step, but now they're ready to confess and ask forgiveness and celebrate that. This is enough. They do not need further punishment. But we do have, if, if, if there's a continued rebellion, then, then God forbid we, we will have to use that. But here's the thing here also. You still need to help them learn. Step five here. Impose a logical consequence. After forgiveness is done, now, son, we've forgiven you. I love you so much. But in order to help you learn not to do this again, this is not a punishment. It's a, it's a consequence. In order to help you learn, we're going to take away the toy that caused this disobedience or whatever. And so that, that's the, the final step also, is the, the logical consequence that is imposed. Punishment, by the way, isn't the only method uh, to, to change their behavior. I'm going to give you one, one last slide on that, and then we'll talk about prayer just for a moment. But should he err at all? Should the father or mother err at all? It is better to err on the side of mercy than on the side of severity. Good rule of thumb there, just to err on the side of caution with regards to these punishments. Now, here's another way. It's not just punishments and consequences. Instead of punishing them when they did wrong, I would hold out inducements to them to do right. One was in the habit of throwing herself, this is a little girl they had in her home, throwing herself on the floor if she could not have her own way. I said to her, if you will not lose your temper once today, your Uncle White and I will take you in, a, in the carriage and we will have a happy day in the country. But if you throw yourself on the floor once, you will forfeit the right to the pleasure. So hold out inducements. Life gets happier when you obey. Life gets less happy when you disobey. The most important factor of all is what all these parents had in common is they had a lot of time in prayer for their children. Praying for our children's spiritual health is the most important thing we can do for them other than modeling it and actually combining that together. Because here you have the mother. Remember it goes angels, moms, and then, I'm sorry, God, moms, then angels, then the king on his throne, then the rest of us. Here you have now moms petitioning the Almighty. There is no power greater than the power of a praying mother. It is impossible to estimate the power of a praying mother's influence. I know of nothing that causes me so great sadness as a prayerless home. Parents, pray much more than you do. Your compassionate Redeemer is watching you with love and sympathy, ready to hear your prayers and to render you the assistance that you need. He knows the burdens of every mother's heart and is her best friend in every emergency. And we have some emergencies sometimes in our homes, don't we? 
His everlasting arms support the God-fearing, faithful mother. Man, I need His everlasting arms sometimes so badly because my weak, human, frail arms of parenting and the, the strength that I try and muster in my own strength is so much weakness compared to God's strength. Without His everlasting arms, we would all crumble with meaningless efforts. But with His arms holding up ours, we have all the strength of the universe behind us. Difficulties will arise. You will meet with obstacles. But look constantly to Jesus. When an emergency arises, ask, Lord, ask, Lord, what shall I do now? If you refuse to fret or scold, the Lord will show you the way. Two closing quotations. Parents, are you working with unflagging energy in behalf of your children? The God of heaven marks your solicitude, your earnest work, your constant watchfulness. He hears your prayers with patience and tenderness. Train your children for the Lord. All heaven is interested in your work. God will unite with you crowning your efforts with success. When the judgment shall sit and the books shall be opened, when the well done of the great judge is pronounced and the crown of immortal glory is placed upon the brow of the victor, many will raise their crowns inside of the assembled universe and pointing to their mother say, she made me all I am through the grace of God. Her instruction, her prayers have blessed me to my eternal salvation. Moms, dads, we have a work to do to raise the remnant. And that moment will make it all worth it. All the sacrifice, all the doing things that we we have to set aside things we'd rather do. We don't get our to-do list done. We spend our time with our children. We do things weirdly. People say, you guys are so different. Why do you have to be that way? Because the Lord has asked us to and we want to experience that moment. We want our children to be presenting the final message of hope and warning to the world. Brethren, let's close in prayer and ask the Lord to bless every child in our remnant church that these children would play that role and that we would see them in the kingdom. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the promise that you will crown our efforts with success and crown our children with the victor's crown in that last day. And I just pray for every soul, every little soul, attached to this room directly or indirectly through families, through friends, through churches, through the lost in Babylon who are yet to be called out. I just pray, Lord, that you would bring revival into our homes, that the church, the school, the firm in our homes would be exactly as you've required, that we, with with grace and joy and peace and cheerfulness, would apply the, the highest standard of piety and holiness that you've asked of us. And Lord, many of us right now feel so incapable, so inadequate, so much like we've failed. And Lord, we thank you so much for second chances, for forgiveness, for power to move forward, making small changes one step at a time. And we just thank you for bearing with us. We want to do our best for you in your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.